Welcome back, one and all, to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Cotter. And it's Monday, so that means it must be time for a new podcast. It does, and um, Monday is also Dusty Day. Um, we've got Dusty Hosley speaking with David Gordon White. We're going to be talking about yoga, but not just yoga. We're talking about historical, popular, and scholarly constructions of yoga. Let's have an archaeology of this term. Take it away, Dusty. David Gordon White is J.F. Brownie, Professor of Comparative Religion in the Religious Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is also the only non-European scholar to have ever been admitted to the Center for the Study of India and South Asia in Paris. White is an expert in South Asian religious traditions and has published widely on the historical development of yoga and tantra. His books include The Alchemical Body, Siddha Traditions of Medieval India, Kiss of the Yogini, Tantric Sex and Its South Asian Contexts, Sinister Yogis, and the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, a biography. He has also edited two volumes, Tantra in Practice and Yoga in Practice. His first book, Myths of the Dogman, analyzed European, Indian, and Chinese mythic accounts of a monstrous race. White's current research focuses on demonology and mythic exchanges in ancient and medieval periods, in addition to his research, White has also presented lectures at the Smithsonian Institute, Esalen, the Kapalu Center for Yoga and Health, and other locations. In this interview, we discuss the history and development of yoga in its South Asian contexts, and then examine its transformations across the globe into the contemporary era. David, thank you so much for joining us at the Religious Studies Project. Pleasure to be with you. Well, I'd like to just begin by asking the, perhaps it's the elephant in the room, what is yoga? Yeah, easy question, hard to answer. Um, it's kind of like asking what is art. It's, it's a term in Sanskrit that has one of the widest semantic fields of any word in Sanskrit. So its meanings range from anything from the act of yoking an animal to conjunctions of planets and stars, uh, mixing various substances, a device, a recipe, a method, a charm, an incantation, zeal, care, diligence, discipline, use, application, fraud, trickery, and the great work of alchemists. Um, it's um, broadest sort of um, uh, definition would be something like um, art, practice, or discipline, or metaphysical system, or soteriological system. But of course, that broad definition gets um, tweaked by every uh, sect or uh, philosophical group or um, uh, religious order over time and space across the South Asian uh, spectrum. So where does the, the word uh, come from, maybe in, in its earliest, where, where we find it in its earliest, uh, and what sets of associations come with that? Yeah, this is probably going to come as a surprise to most people who practice yoga, and I know there are millions of them out there. Um, it has the same source as the English word to yoke. So its earliest uses, which are found in the Vedas, are related to the yoking of animals to a chariot, particularly a war horse to a chariot. Um, and that was the case, because that was the case, um, yoga was also a word that meant wartime as opposed to peacetime. It was the time that you yoked up your war horse and uh, went out to fight. Um, and um, also related to the 
relationship between yoga and warfare was the notion that a heroic death on the battlefield was one that culminated in the warriors being carried up to heaven on a celestial chariot. Warriors' apotheosis was um, implemented through the descent of this chariot that carried him up through the sun, and that chariot was called the yoga. So uh, the earliest references to the term are all uh, martial, in fact. And do you know about when, when is this taking place? Well, it's hard to date texts in South Asia, but the Vedas, uh, and the, there are references to this in the Rig Veda, which is the, the most important and earliest, so it, they could go back as far as 1500 BCE, uh, perhaps even slightly further back. Um, and we find narrative accounts of the yogi being, uh, the, sorry, the warrior being carried up to heaven uh, on a yoga, on a chariot, in the Mahabharata, which is from the, around the year zero. Uh, so it's it's a, a meaning that that uh, had a very long uh, lifespan before it sort of faded out of memory. And how else was yoga conceived in textual or even non-textual material culture sources in the in the ancient period, or perhaps even leading up to medieval period? Well, we only have textual sources to go on because uh, the, the iconographic evidence we have doesn't have labels on it. So, I mean, you do see figures sitting cross-legged on the Indo-European seals from uh, 2000, and beyond uh, 2000 BC and earlier, but there's there's no indication that this is someone practicing yoga, and I'm quite sure that that's not the case. So uh, we're left with text and texts post the Vedas, the earliest texts post the Vedas, uh, where that um, a chariot and warfare is the prominent one, um, are the Upanishads, and uh, one in particular, the Kataka, which probably dates from about. 3rd century BCE, has a fairly long discussion of yoga. And there you still have the chariot reference, but it now becomes a matter of yoking the mind, the senses, uh, the various constituents of the mind-body complex to a practice so that you can control them. And in fact, the description in the Kathaka is very similar in its details to a passage from the Phaedrus of Plato which is earlier, in fact. I'm not saying that the Indians got it from Greece, but it's uncanny how similar the two uh, extended metaphors are. Uh, so what's interesting is this is a way we see a kind of a segueing from the martial references of yoga to something more internalized, something more meditative, something more to do with the, the mind than the body. And that happens around the, begins to happen around the 3rd century BCE. Is there a sense that, that these conceptions are circulating primarily amongst elite, either practitioners or scholars, or is this something that's widespread? Well, again, we only have text to go on, and the texts are written, and they're written, well, yes, were they written originally? This is also a matter for some discussion, but texts that were, let's say, transmitted uh, in either Sanskrit, which was an elite uh, language of expression, or in um, the languages of um, early Buddhism and Jainism, uh, Pali and Prakrit. Um, in those sources, we only have sort of prescriptive language about yoga and the practice thereof. 
and not descriptive. So we, we don't we don't have descriptions of lots of people doing this. We just pretty much have prescriptions of here's how to do such and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really continues uh, pretty deep in the medieval period, I would say. So how did certain systems of yoga develop among different groups during the, the classical period, or what core principles came to be identified as yoga? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's tricky again. It, it, among, we certainly have parallel developments in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism between, let's say, the time of the Kataka Upanishad, maybe even slightly earlier, and the early centuries, century CE. However, in Buddhist and Jain circles, the term for these meditative practices and their results are generally dhyana or jhana, which means meditation specifically. They don't use the word yoga for that body of practice, whereas in the sources we identify as Hindu, such as the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, and these Upanishads, um, they start using that word yoga, of which a component, an important component, is jhana, meditation. So that is, let's say, at the core of what we retrospectively would see as the origins of yoga practice, the kind of yoga practice that we know. Um, So you have a school within Hinduism, and again I use the term advisedly, uh, of yoga, a philosophical school, uh, which was an offshoot of another school called Samkhya. And these are the two earliest philosophical, well, two of the three earliest philosophical schools in Hindu India. And in both cases, in fact, in all the Hindu, and I'd say all the South Asian philosophical schools, the, the goal is always soteriological. It's always liberation from suffering existence. So in the case of Samkhya, you do it through um, uh, analysis, philosophical analysis. In the yoga school, you use those Samkhya philosophical analytical tools, but you combine them with meditation because you can have breakthroughs in a meditative state that you might not have in a waking sort of analytical state of mind. And that's where breathing begins to come into the picture as well, because you can still the mind and the senses and uh, become more turned inward and away from the distractions of this world by regulating your, your breath. And so breath control is also an early component that remains in the mix uh, down to the present day. Interestingly, posture doesn't really come along that early. Um, I mean, you start to have references to it perhaps as early as the 5th century, but um, they're very general. Uh, so the, the, the asanas that are the heart of you know modern-day yoga practice are a relatively late um, phenomenon, a late arrival on the scene. Um, so in these early schools, both Hindu and Buddhist, yoga is an, an analysis of perception and cognition in a system in which to know something is to be it. These are gnosiological systems. Um, with that, you have the analysis, carried with that is the notion that as your mind is calmed, higher states of consciousness take over, and these higher states of consciousness are more expansive, and that's to be taken in a very literal sense, because you are what you know, so as your consciousness expands, your very being expands, and so you 
become as great as the universe, both temporally and spatially. And there's this um, correlation between higher states of consciousness and actually rising through the cosmic levels to higher and higher places in you know, the cosmic egg, although it wasn't called that at that early of a time. Um, and also, you can see forward in time and back in time. And you have all these supernatural powers that begin to accrue they're not supernatural, they're natural once your consciousness is greater than the limits of your mind and your body. And um, this um, carries with it then um, omniscience, um, a type of perception that is specific to yoga called yogi pratyaksha, yogi perception, which in many philosophical schools was the highest form of uh, uh, the highest, uh, the most verifiable, and what am I trying to say here? It's the form of knowledge that trumps all other forms of knowledge. Other forms of perception are, are, are inferior to yogi perception. Yogis see things as they truly are, uh, both present, past, uh, and throughout the entire universe. And then that heightened power of perception in turn translates into the notion that yogis can see through things and into things such as other people's bodies and their souls and their own souls which means they by extension can penetrate into other people's bodies and this opens onto this entire field of yogis taking over other people's bodies and sort of becoming armies of one um, and that appears at a very early time actually uh, in the Mahabharata meaning the around the year zero. So these are some of the quite early um, uh, parameters of yoga, but that continue the, these four things, uh, even down into the, the pre-modern period, well, through the medieval period at least. Could you elaborate a little bit more on uh, taking over other bodies? That sounds fascinating. The, it's, the, it's the part that ended up being the subject matter of the book you cited earlier, Sinister Yogis. Um, in the Mahabharata, which is the text in which we have the earliest narrative descriptions of yogis, not prescriptions, but descriptions of what yogis do, the only thing yogis do is take over other people's bodies. That is what they do. How they do it doesn't get explained in any detail until later, but it's already intimated in the Mahabharata, and this has to do with perception. Indian notions of perception were like those of Plato, extromission, that is to say, rays come out of your eyes, and they conform to the surface of the object you're looking at, and perception takes place on the surface of that object, not on the surface of your retina or on your optical nerve. So yogis, by virtue of their yogic power, could not only project their energy to the surface of things, they could project their energy into things, and that's how the theory of taking over other people's body was grounded. So you have in the later works of the tantras, and particularly one tantra called the tantra of the eye, not by coincidence, I would say, the nature tantra, a whole chapter, or the better part of a chapter, on what's called subtle yoga, and it's precisely that you, you lock your eyes into those of your victim, and then you just start taking him away and putting yourself in his place. And, and the implication is you can do that to a thousand different people. And this is a way not only to do things like burn off your old karma, because you can burn it off a thousandfold by doing it in 
lots of bodies at the same time, but also to control, you know, basically create an army and do what you want with it. And yogis were in the tantric period and post-tantric considered to be very powerful and dangerous figures for reasons like that. So it's, you know, there, there's a logic there that if you follow it short, yogis can take over, their, over other people's bodies. You know? So you had mentioned earlier a, a, a soteriological purpose perhaps and then there's this other purpose we've been talking about that seems about almost like superpowers so are these connected or are they separate or it depends how you determine soteriology i mean if salvation is liberation from human conditioning then taking over other people's bodies and expanding your body to be the size of the universe is a soteriology but more humble ones are just escaping from the cycle of rebirth and uh, becoming something like pure spirit or merged with the absolute both are possible goals of yoga um, this is where many of us have drawn distinctions between kind of two registers of uh, yoga um, I like to call them yoga practice and yogi practice. Uh, Stuart Sarbacker, who wrote a wonderful book called Samadhi, um, he refers to them as the um, sensitive, which is to say the sort of turning inward and getting away from outer distractions and thereby realizing your innate um, uh, um, perfection and, and uh, your innate um, non-difference from the absolute. And then the other is numinous, which is this cultivating of supernatural powers by which you realize that you are the universe or that you can take over the universe. And that actually goes back, I mean, these are two scholarly terms, but the Buddhists themselves had words for um, the two types of practice. The one was experiential and the other was um, just uh, knowledge-based. And so the experientials were the ones who went for the powers of the the knowledge ones were the ones who went to realize this innate uh, freedom that was always already there. Um, but they're two sides of the same coin, uh, as foreign as that may seem to us. So how did yoga then continue to develop in the medieval period? What, what changes, for example, occurred with, with tantric yoga or hatha yoga, yogis, the yoga Upanishads? Well, I've already started to get ahead of myself a little because when I talked about the nature of Tantra, we're already in the medieval period. That's a non-century text. And, it, I mean, it's clearly theorizing something that was already around a thousand years earlier. Um, but the, or the most important medieval development is that of the Tantras in which the goal is no longer to become united with God or one with the Absolute. It's to become a living God not to give up your own body and lifestyle, but have it both ways. So to be a god in the world. And so these practices become uh, directed towards kind of a self-aggrandizement in a very literal sense. And um, this was sort of, there was a fast track to that, which involved uh, these um, breakthrough practices, such as commiserating with female figures called yoginis, um, who uh, carried in their germplasm the, the sort of the fluid gnosis that was the essence of the absolute, and uh, their germplasm was communicated through their menstrual blood. And so in uh, tantric yoga, an aspect of that tantric yoga was drinking menstrual blood in order to get a sort of a main line to that state of mind and the bodily transformations that go with that, uh, through initiation into these clans of the yoginis that led one to become their lord and leader 
and then again an all-powerful uh, uh, figure in the world um, it's in the context of tantric yoga that we then see developing the um, subtle body mapping because the yoginis when they are encountered in the world they're encountered in yogini temples most often or lonely mountaintops and um, these sites become internalized as the chakras of the um, of the subtle body these energy centers that are aligned along the uh, spinal column and um, it's quite explicit so the circles of yoginis that you find in the world become circles of yoginis in your body and you merge with them at these different stations along the way from the lower abdomen up to the cranial vault. Um, so that's where subtle body, um, subtle body mapping comes into the yogic mix. Um, now that the use of the chakras was originally meditative. You, you meditate on the yoginis in the chakras as a means to raising consciousness and energy and, and sort of gaining this uh, status, uh, this condition of being a, a master of the universe. Um, and then somewhere around the 10th to 12th centuries, um, Hindu alchemy comes along. Uh, Hindus had a very highly developed alchemical system, uh, rivaling that of China and uh, Greece and Egypt and Persia. And um, Alchemy in India was a means to um, transforming the body, perfecting it um, by ingesting um, alchemical elixirs, which were identified as the blood and semen of the divine dyad, Shiva, and the goddess of Tantra. So again, you've got sexual fluids involved, but now they're being... Uh, they're playing out on a mineral level, but they're also being absorbed into the body once they've been perfected at that mineral level. And because one has to first perfect those mineral reagents in a laboratory involving uh, thermodynamic transformations, uh, heating these reagents in uh, closed vessels so that they, 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 they become transformed, um, that became transferred onto the body, and the body becomes a kind of alchemical apparatus, the head being the upper vessel, the torso and abdomen being the lower vessel. And this is where the hatha spins off of the combination between alchemy and tantric yoga, because you've got the chakras, you've got the energy at the base of the chakras called kundalini, which you've also had in the tantric um, yogic context. I hadn't mentioned that earlier. So she's sort of the concatenation of all those yoginis, all those individual female energies. Um, and then the, uh, the uh, male reagent in the alchemical um, context is uh, mercury which is the semen of the god shiva that's analogized with the semen of the yogi that gets energized and transformed thermodynamically as the kundalini is raised through the chakras so that by the time it the semen in her body reaches the cranial vault which is tantamount to the upper chamber of the alchemical apparatus it's been purified, transformed into this elixir that the yogi then drinks internally, and he becomes immortal in the body, which is of a piece with the tantric goal of yoga as a means to uh, enjoying the universe like a god, but without having to lose your body in the process. So that's that's what early hatha yoga was. In fact, it was it was not um, this other stuff that people practice nowadays.
Well, so let's let's talk about a little bit. How do we get to from that to where we're at nowadays? What transformations have has yoga undergone in the modern period? Right. Well, I mean, if we'll, let's say if, if modern period begins in the 15th century, and I guess you can say it does in some parts of the world. Um, we have to start with an important Hatha text called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which was late 15th century, and it introduces um, asanas, the, the, the uh, postures, as an important component of the practice, of that thermodynamic practice that I was talking about. It also introduces um, philosophical principles that are quite alien to earlier yoga. As I said, yoga philosophy was paired up with another early philosophical system called Samkhya, which was patently dualistic. Um, and yoga in the um, Hatha Yoga Pradipika becomes paired up with what had by then become the prominent and remains the prominent form of philosophy in, Indic, uh, in Hindu India, which is Vedanta. Vedanta is non-dualist. Um, so um, the practice of Hatha Yoga in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika is a means to realizing one's innate identity with the absolute. And here we're moving away from the yogi as God in the world to the yogi as realizing his innate um, union uh, with the absolute essence of the universe. And that is the watchword of yoga that gets picked up then in the modern period, by which, let's say, the colonial period, uh, which is interesting for a number of reasons. On the one hand, I haven't said much about the Yoga Sutra, but nowadays people take that to be sort of a guide to classical yoga theory and practice. Um, the Yoga Sutra probably dates from the 5th century CE or so. It was virtually forgotten by the 15th century. It, it just was erased from the historical memory. And um, it was in no small part due to the um, detective work of British Orientalists that the Yoga Sutra was resurrected. Uh, Henry Thomas Colebrook was an early, that is to say, early 19th century Orientalist. He learned Sanskrit, and he wrote a study of the six philosophical schools in the, the first decades of the 19th century, and the second of the three of the six was the Yoga School. And that um, triggered an interest in uh, the root text of the Yoga School, the Yoga Sutra, both among Europeans and Indians. Uh, and over the next 60 or so years, um, that translated into the editing of the Yoga Sutras uh, and the translating of the Yoga Sutras into English. And the um, appropriation of the Yoga Sutras, and as well as in particular, that hybrid um, yoga philosophy as found in the Hatha Yoga Pratipika that I mentioned a moment ago by the theosophists. And so much of what we today, that is to say the yoga subculture today, considers to be you know, timeless yoga tradition comes out of that theosophical appropriation of uh, the Yoga Sutras and the Hatha Yoga, the late Hatha Yoga works. Um, with theosophical injections of notions like magnetism and harmonial religion and uh, the sorts of things that were the new age religions of the time of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And that is what influenced more than 
to the Yoga Sutras themselves, um, Swami Vivekananda, who was the great uh, prophet of yoga uh, to the West when he came and lectured at the Parliament of Religions in 1892 and talked about, well, he didn't talk so much about yoga in that though that address, but, but soon after, people were clamoring for him to explain yoga to them, and he wrote a book called The Raja Yoga a few years later, which was purportedly a translation and study of the uh, Yoga Sutras. And that's what launched, really, uh, more than anything else, the modern notions of what yoga is and always has been, a very monolithic notion that bears little resemblance to the much more tortured history of yoga, as I've briefly been uh, talking about. And um, what followed him was basically a, a quote-unquote yoga renaissance in India. A certain number of, uh, of um, people picked up on his teachings and uh, began to um, practice and uh, disseminate those teachings in India and then bring them to the West. Um, in the wake of Vivekananda, there was a um, so-called yoga renaissance in India itself in the early decades of the 20th century, where um, the principles of yoga as Vivekananda understood them, together with some of the theosophical notions and a scientization of yoga combined to a, into a, a specifically Indian form of modern yoga that... Um, remained within India for the most part because um, between the 20s and the 1960s, uh, at least in North America, there were very few Indians admitted to the United States due to strict uh, immigration laws. And that's why it really wasn't until um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Beatles and, and what came in their wake that we had this explosion of uh, postural yoga in the United States that uh, is a combination of, of sort of Vivekanandan take on quote-unquote classical yoga and then the postural practices that um, were innovated in particular by figures like um, Krishnamacharya, a very important figure in the history of modern yoga who uh, was a tutor to the royal family of uh, the Maharaja of Mysore in the 1940s and perhaps into the 50s. And uh, it was his disciples who uh, became uh, and remained the, the great gurus of uh, yoga in the West. So Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, and um, and um, Deji Kachar, of which the two are still living. I believe Patabi Joyce is still alive, and Deji Kachar certainly is. Um, and uh, it's their legacy that uh, we we have inherited here, and that we are still living uh, here in the in the twenty first century. Well, David, thank you so much for a, a wonderful and thorough tour of the history of yoga, boy, from the, the beginning all the way up to to the present day. I want. Is there anything you want to add about about yoga or about the way it's practiced today or or per, perceived by different groups? I guess a mention should be made about the place of yoga in culture wars, um, because you have, and this is pretty specific to North America and to a lesser extent India, but you don't find this in Europe at all, and it has to do with the sociology of knowledge as well as pressure groups and lobbies. Um, 
claims are being made to the Indianness of yoga by Indians and to the foreignness and non-Christianness of yoga by uh, pressure groups in the United States. And uh, there's been a great deal of sound and fury, often signifying nothing um, about that, because then, by and large, neither party is really aware of um, yoga beyond the most superficial sort of grasp of the of the subject. Um, but it's 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 quite interesting to note that none of this is taking place in Europe. Uh, and I would say that that's because the Indian population in Europe is um, from different socioeconomic um, uh, backgrounds than is that of the uh, North America. And I'll leave it at that because it's a very prickly subject that uh, often uh, results in great acrimony. Well, David, thank you again so much for interviewing with us today for the Religious Studies Project and uh, for sharing your time. My pleasure, Dustin. Another excellent interview there from Dusty Hosley. Thanks to you and to David Gordon White. Um, we know that Dusty has another couple of interviews potentially uh, on the horizon, but he is trying to write up his dissertation at the moment. So. We we have our fingers crossed that uh, some more interviews will happen um, in the autumn time. But he's not the only one with uh, interview plans in the pipeline. I mean, we're just coming up on our summer break. We've got one more podcast for you next week, which we'll tell you about in a little while. But after that, it's our summer hiatus mm. all the way through to September. Exactly. But um, I will be attending the BSA Soccer Conference and recording a, at least a couple of interviews there. David's going to be in Helsinki at the EASR Conference. Indeed. And we've and got I, a few representatives there. We've got quite a few um, interviews lined up for um, for there. Um, Brianne Fallon, um, who's sort of come on board as one of our new rising star interviewers, is going to be there. And I, I think she's got at least two um, potentially set up already. She has, I believe so, yeah. Um, and Damon Lekarinos, um is recording a few for us as well. If you're listening out there and you're thinking, I'm going to a conference, I'm going to be rubbing shoulders with uh, the great and the good in the religious studies world... Um, you know, you could maybe try your hand too. You know, we're we're very democratic in that sense. If you maybe see an opportunity coming up over the summer or even later, just get in touch. That's just drop an email to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and we will help you get that happening. Yeah. This week we're looking forward to Sammy Bishop's response to um, David Gordon White's interview. And next week we've got another from Martin Lepage, He's uh, been speaking to Mark Jurgensmeyer, um, who was on the podcast, um, oh, must be almost in our first year, maybe in the second year, when Per Smith spoke to him about uh, sociotheology and cosmic war. Oh, that's right, yeah. That um, second year, I think. And uh, next week they're talking about um, religion and globalization. Um, Building very much up, we had uh, Peter Beyer on around the same time as Mark Jurgensmeyer was on last time. Um, so they're sort of using that as a springboard and taking the conversation and further. Specifically, they're going to be talking about religious tensions in the sort of globalized context, which should be pretty interesting and very timely, I think. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that one. Um, 
We've got a bit more news for you, but we'll probably save that for next week. We'll do that next um, week. All we have to say is remember our YouTube channel exists and is growing. And hopefully over the summer, we might use the downtime to do a bit of sort of um, editing, tidying up on there, getting a lot of the, the tags added and things. As well as hopefully filming more of the interviews that we're doing. I'll certainly be taking the cameras to the EASR and hopefully you can take them to Sockrail as well and see Perfect. if we can come up with something there. Yeah. And um, remember, we're on iTunes and other podcast providers, including Google Play, um, Facebook and Twitter. We just passed 3,000 followers on Twitter um, the other week, so we were happily tweeting about that. Um, and we're closing in on 4,000 for the Facebook page, which will be um, quite exciting. We're at 3,700 and something at the moment, but... Yes. By the time we come back, we'll have passed 4,000. So, you know, we're delighted uh, to all of you who are following us. And, you know, remember the page is there and that you can participate in the discussion, get a bit of a debate going. Um, and don't forget our Amazon links. They'll stay, you know, even though we might be taking a break, Amazon never sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> it is the behemoth. Um, so .com.co.uk.ca, you can get in there. Use those links, buy stuff. We'll get a percentage and it'll make us come back in September with even bigger smiles on our faces. Indeed. Indeed. But for now, I think all that needs to be said is, Chris, thanks for listening.